Good morning, everybody. It is 11.09 on December 16th, 2022. And I noticed that in other podcasts, they don't always give the date and time, but I think it's important because HCM keeps marching forward and things change over time. So if you're watching us live now on Facebook, welcome. If you're listening to us on podcast, welcome to you. And if you want to watch this at a later date, you can pick us up on YouTube. So this morning, I have the special honor of having two great co-hosts for Tales from the Heart, a podcast from the Hypotrophic Cardiomyopathy Association. And I am joined by Dr. Steve Amon of the Mayo Clinic and Dr. Martin Marin of the Leahy Clinic. You have a long Leahy Hospital Medical Center. You have the whole name behind you there, Marty, for those watching. Good morning, gentlemen. Welcome. Good morning. I've tasked us with something a little different today. And while the topic for the month for the HCMA is really about gratitude and acknowledging loss, which is at the end of the year, a lot of families are acknowledging that there might be empty seats at the table and it's processing grief through the holidays is difficult. I thought we would kind of talk a little bit more on some of the positive notes and some of the lessons learned in 2022. It was a big year for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Some pretty pivotal things have happened and they will continue to evolve as, as time progresses. What do we think is the most meaningful thing to the community that happened in 2022. Steve, what do you think is the most pivotal? Well, I think I think the most pivotal thing is clearly the fact that there is a medication that targeted HCM directly that was approved by the FDA. Not even just because that medication is available, because it represents a new direction for our pharmaceutical companies to actually think about people with HCM and how they might design drugs to help people in this community. So Yes, Mavicampton is making a difference for some of the patients uh, out there. It's the it's the fact that HCM is on the radar of pharmaceutical companies and drug discovery, et cetera, that marks the public debut of that. Some of us have known this was coming for a while, but this that's what I think is the important message from that. Marty, your comments? You know, it's been it's in a, in a way kind of an historic year for HCM because we have had the opportunity to have the first drug approved specifically. For this disease. And so for those listening, just to kind of put that into some context, HCM is about 60 years old in a way since its first clinical description of the disease in the late 50s. All the drug therapies that have been applied to the disease over those years have all been drugs that have been sort of used originally or developed originally for diseases other than HCM have been applied to HCM have been helpful for sure for a lot of patients still doesn't mean that they weren't helpful, but that we never had a drug specifically designed, so to speak, to target in a way some of the specific mechanisms of the disease. And so it's almost 60 years that HCM has gone without a specific drug therapy. That's a long time, longer than almost any other cardiovascular disease, perhaps. And so that makes it itself, as Steve was saying, kind of an historic achievement and certainly in a lot of ways elevates the visibility of the disease as well. You know, what comes along with this drug, in addition to its obviously direct benefits to certain patients, gives the disease a different profile, a different visibility in a way that 
opens the door really to a lot of other kinds of initiatives, new other therapies, as we'll probably talk about today, other interests from other parties in the disease. For patients, greater education and visibility means that there's greater awareness and education about the disease. So it, it really has a domino effect, really, in a way that's that that that's really tremendous. And so that makes it historic. We're referring to Camzios, which that's the, the brand name. The name you knew it under a clinical trial as is Mavicamptin, so a myosin inhibitor. So it is a new class of drug. But while we finished a, a bit of a journey with a clinical trial process, getting through phase one, phase two, phase three, approval from the FDA on a drug in a class that is new, it's not, this isn't the end. This is just the beginning. Exactly. And can we talk a little bit about other myosin inhibitors that are in discovery and that have moved along through 2022? So you want to talk a little bit about Afficamptin and what that trial is looking like? Sure, I'll start with that and then Steve can follow. Afficamptin is what we call the next next generation myosin inhibitor. So Mavicamptin or Camzios is the first. Obviously, as you heard, FDA approved for clinical use in symptomatic obstructive HCM in April of this year. And another company, Cytokinetics, has been developing what's called the next generation or the next reiteration of of that class of drugs, myosin inhibitors. And so Afficamptin, the name of that drug, and that differs from Mavicamptin a little bit in its properties, mostly related to its what we call pharmacology, pharmacodynamic properties. So things like half-life and how it's distributed in the body and its effects on the heart can can be a little different for that reason. And so it has differences in that way, although it's overall, it acts its mechanism the same way as Camzios. Okay. So the the principal similarities are there, just differences, what we call a little bit in bells and whistles as it relates to pharmacodynamics, which may translate, we don't know yet, but may translate into differences between Afficamptin and Camzios in terms of efficacy and safety. That's something that we don't know yet, but that's um, under exploration right now in what is a phase three study. So like Mavicamptin, which was approved based on a strategy of phase one, phase two, and phase three studies with the drug, Afficamptin obviously is going through a similar process right now. It's not as far along, obviously, because it's not approved. And it's currently being investigated as a phase three in a phase three clinical trial, which if you know successful, will probably result in a similar process that Camzios went through, where that would then potentially be looked at for FDA approval, possibly based on those results. So that's kind of where we are with Afi Campton right now. I have been asked many times over the past couple of months, well, should I just go for the FDA approved drug or do I want to try an investigational drug? And I find that is an interesting question because while Camzios, Mavicamptin, is FDA approved for use in symptomatic, obstructed HCM patients, it's still kind of, under investigation because we have this REMS program that monitors very closely the utility of the drug and who can prescribe it. So I almost see the approval as like phase four is another step in in drug discovery, right? It's real world. It's out there. So I think we're like at a clinical trial level of a 3.75 kind of an area, the way I look at it, because we're still learning. 
We mm-hmm. don't have a lot of data on CAMSIOS yet. It's looking promising. But as of right now, I believe there's a thousand patients, give or take, that are taking the drug worldwide. So it's still very early days. We're cautiously optimistic that it's going to have some real implications in a positive way for patients. And then Affie Campton is, I don't know, Marty or Steve, can you talk about where they are in their trials right now? You know, I'll have Marty take that because he's closer to that. Yeah. So Affie Campton is, you know, currently being investigated in what's called a phase three trial. And that, what that means is that you know, it's already kind of gone through phase two, which is a study where you're looking at afikamptin or any drug in terms mostly of kind of safety and tolerability. Now it's in a phase three where it's being looked at in patients with symptomatic obstructive HCM as a clinical trial, investigative drug, where, you know, you're still looking at safety and efficacy, but you're also, um, safety and tolerability, but you're also looking at efficacy, how well it does to improve symptoms and make patients feel better. And so that's where we're at. We're sort of at the beginning, the first quarter to first half of enrollment in that phase three trial. So we can expect that that will continue for a little bit of time before that's done. So we won't probably know information from that trial for you know uh, another year or two. Beyond myosin inhibitors. What is there in clinical trial? Yeah, well, so, I mean, some people are trying to go back and look at some of our existing medications to to study them more rigorously rather than what we've done historically. And that is tried a drug. And if we got positive feedback from patients have kind of stuck with it, there's been some randomized couple randomized trials of beta blockers, even going back and showing that in fact, it does make a difference for patients. It can reduce the gradient modestly, the resting gradient, but it probably has a bigger impact on the exercise gradient and the people actually a percentage of them do feel better taking those drugs. And I think that's important uh, that that those studies were done because it again affirms what many experts have been doing for years. But also, it's important that we don't abandon easy to use, readily available, you know, uh, low consequence side effects <laughs> uh, medications because there's something bright and shiny on the horizon, and we we just you know we have to make sure that we we keep the bigger picture in mind about those things. I think that's an excellent point that while we've been using things, quote, Mm off-label, we have many, many years, decades of experience on how they actually do work. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't think we should abandon the things that we know, but we should continue to look for better ways of getting at, you know, what actually creates symptoms in patients. Um, Marty, you want to talk about the Embrya trial a little bit? Yeah, and I think that you know we 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 were talking about Camzios and Apicamptin, which are you know well, at least Camzios is approved for symptomatic obstructive HCM, and Apicamptin's in phase three trials looking at that same kind of population of symptomatic obstructive HCM patients. But when we talk about sort of what's on the horizon as well, you know, I think rightfully so. There's you know a lot of interest in the non-obstructive HCM patients. Yeah too, you know, that in in some ways may be the greatest unmet need therapeutically for the disease right now, because if you've got symptoms from non-obstructive HCM, we have even less options, particularly if you develop worsening symptoms that are are advanced, that gets very complicated. And so we have very little. So in the way that, you know, I think when we look at the future, I think what we're looking at is a couple of things. One, 
do the myosin inhibitor drugs, mavicamptin and afikamptin, do they help in non-obstructive HCM? So there's going to be clinical trials either starting or going to be starting soon, looking at that question. And in theory, they should. I mean, the mechanism of action should help the heart relax better. But, you know, that, that there's a reason why, why we need to do the trials, because theory yeah. doesn't always play out in human life. That's right. You got to do the studies to know, right? And so um, that's exactly right. So we're, I think that that's going to happen and we'll, we'll see. I think we'll probably have some idea, but it's not going to be for a while. I think, you know, we're looking at a couple of years before we'll probably know greater insights or clarity to the question of do myosin inhibitors help in non-obstructive HCM? There's also interest in looking at other drugs in non-obstructive HCM. And there's a currently, there's a phase two study, a smaller study, looking at a, a drug um, that's in a class called metabolic modulator. These are drugs that have been around in cardiology for a while, treating other forms of heart disease and, and chest pain from angina that help to sort of make the energy utilization of the heart muscle more efficient. They do that in a kind of a, a mechanism where they shift the energy utilization of the heart from free fatty acids to glucose to carbohydrates. All that means is that that makes it more efficient. It's able to contract and relax potentially better or more efficiently because the heart's using a different energy source. And so that may help the heart, as Steve was saying, relax better for non-obstructive HCM patients, and that may make them feel better. And so a company called Imbria has a small phase two study looking at a new metabolic modulator in that way to help symptomatic non-obstructive HCM. And so we're excited about that and maybe have some idea about whether that will ultimately be helpful, you know, within the year or two as well. So some other players have come to the table and have some clinical trials in HCM. Entresto, which we've all seen on every single commercial almost every day of our lives since it launched. What do you guys think about Entresto and HCM? You know, it's interesting. So Entresto for the for the audience is a is a medication that's a combination of two medications that was developed for patients who had dilated cardiomyopathy and advanced heart failure symptoms and originally used for the most symptomatic patients and like many medications been walking to less and less symptomatic patients. Then in the heart failure world, there is a group of patients who have something called HEFPEF, which is heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. And arguably, HCM would is a condition that can lead to heart failure with normal ejection fraction. And so it's just a natural kind of extension of a, of a drug process to say, are there other populations that might benefit from this? I think many people have started using these types of agents kind of off-label for the patient with non-obstructive HCM who is refractory to the limited therapies we have now. Um, it wouldn't be a good agent for patients who have obstructive HCM because it would probably would make their obstruction worse. That's why we're focusing on non-obstructive patients. But I think I think this is a natural evolution of what we should do. And Tresto and, and SGLT2, the anti-diabetic medications, which have been proven in that same population of patients with heart failure preserved infection, we should be studying those in patients with HCM because if that gives us more tools in our toolbox to treat these patients who have symptoms, we need those tools. So that brings me to my other drug that has been popping up a lot lately, and that's Jardius, which is yeah. a diabetic medication. Why would that work in HCM? Well, it's, it's similar. So, you know, the, the story is there were some medications developed for patients with diabetes that actually caused more heart failure. 
So then every subsequent medication developed for diabetes had to study its impact on the heart in this class, SGLT2 inhibitors. And I'm not going to begin to tell you what all those letters stand for. When they did their studies, it showed tremendous improvement in heart function. And then they said it in patients who didn't even have diabetes. And so I don't understand the pharmacology of it myself, but it certainly has gained a foothold in the world of heart failure cardiologists as a medication that almost everyone should be on if they have heart failure symptoms. And so again, because HCM is such a unique entity with abnormalities of the proteins that cause contraction and relaxation in the heart, we can't assume that we should just extrapolate those experiences from other causes of heart failure. We need to study it in patients with HCM to understand does that have a real role. Fantastic. Okay. Are there any other drug trials that we want to cover that happened in 2022 that we can expect some answers from in 23-24? That's about it right now in drugs. I think, that, I think that is about it for drugs. Yeah. We've now begun conversations with a number of companies who are looking at genetic therapies. They didn't happen in 2022, but these companies are evolving to a point where in 23 and 24, we're looking towards potentially providing genetic therapies. This is really complicated stuff. We don't have a lot of data on this yet. We know that right now in the United States, roughly 4,500 individuals have been dosed with genetic therapies, not for HCM, for other diseases. But what do we think about the future of genetic therapies? Well, I think you said it, it's super complicated. Uh, I mean, there's, we, we all know that we have been talking about genetic variants in the proteins that make up the cardiac sarcomere, that contractile element of the heart muscle for a long time. But that, when we look at our patients who have clinical hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, only about 30 to 40% of the patients have one of those variants, which means 60 to 70% have some other kind of genetic recipe or genetic environmental recipe. And how all that comes together for targeting gene therapies is really something that we don't understand yet. And from, from my point of view, I, I, mean, I think that we need to investigate it and I'm glad that people are, but it's, it's a complicated soup. Marty. Yeah, exactly. It, you know, this is um, really complicated stuff, you know, being able to correct the, the, the downstream consequences of genetic mutation in cardiac diseases is a really, really complicated uh, kind of initiative. And so um, I think, I, I think there's not, I don't think we need to spend a ton of time on this because I think it's it, it just, we're so early in this other than to say what kind of echo what Steve said, I think it's, a, you know, obviously it's really exciting. We need to explore, you know, this kind of science um, therapeutic interventions in, in, in a disease like HCM. But we're so early, and there's going to be so much, you know, that's going to happen between now and a long and 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 several years from here that um, it could go a, mum, a number of different kinds of ways. I think it's something to keep an eye on. Couldn't agree more. Okay, so articles of interest in 2022, um, Marty, I'll start with you. What do you think were some of the most impactful publications of 2022 in our space? Well, um, you know, maybe I'm a little biased because I was a contributor on one of these. But, um, Bias noted. Yeah, and, and so with Steve, this happened to be a, a multi-center study, which means it 
It's a study that came from more than one place um, published earlier this year that I thought was really important because what it was was a study that looked at the long-term differences between our two invasive septal reduction therapies, myectomy and alcohol ablation for definitive treatment of symptomatic obstructive HCM. And it was asking the question, which really hasn't been really had before, there's not really been well answered, uh, which is what are, are there long-term, are there differences between those two procedures in mortality, okay? Patients perhaps live longer with one versus the other procedure. And you can imagine that to sort of get clarity to that kind of question, you need to follow patients that have those procedures for long periods of time, which is why we're only starting to get information about that question right now, okay? even though these procedures have been around for a while. So what this study showed earlier this year was that there were, in fact, differences between the two procedures in mortality, what we call all-cause mortality, death, over a long-term follow-up period with surgery, myectomy, providing a sur survival advantage over, or over, over alcohol septal ablation. Even when you did the best that you could do to kind of correct for differences between the two populations of patients, okay? And there are differences in those populations because alcohol patient, patients that go to alcohol ablation tend to be a little bit older. They kind of tend to be a little bit sicker with other comorbidities. So even when you kind of correct for that, that difference in survival remained present between surgery and alcohol ablation. So I, and then I'll just mention that there's going to be also a study coming out that's different, a different study, a different population of HM patients that's going to come out later this year that said the same thing, um, that surgery provides a slight survival advantage of alcohol. So you have going to have two studies by the end of this year now showing that important difference. So to me, that's a, you know, that's an important, uh, those are important advances in our understanding of, of what surgery and alcohol ablation can provide potentially for patients. That doesn't necessarily mean, and we can talk maybe more about this, but it doesn't necessarily mean that for that, that changes the decision that each individual patient may have for surgery or ablation. Mm -hmm. It's part of the conversation. It's considered as part of what we call the shared decision-making process for patients that are part of either of those options. But it now we have evidence to at least provide patients some idea about long-term survival, which we didn't have before. So that's important. I think that's I think that's a really important discussion, Marty. And it does kind of fit with my hypothesis that the surgery, myectomy, the surgeon can do a more robust relief of the outflow tract obstruction that's customized for that patient's anatomy. And if you think about the fact that surgery has the lowest post-therapy obstruction, degree of obstruction than most, well, that heart then has less stress than right. any other heart. Ablation does a pretty good job, but there's just a little bit more gradient for those patients. All of our medications lead with slightly more gradient. That means every time the heart's beating, it's trying to go against this resistance and that just causes some long-term stress. So right. 
continuing to investigate this and, and, and show that is important. For many patients, there might be other factors that decide whether ablation or, or operation is the right way to go for them. But if there are patients who are truly on the fence, one, you know, either one seems reasonable, that's important information for them to know. And, and I, I think it just it fits with our, yep. our theories that we've talked about in the past. I think we've all kind of been on the same page there. We, we use the term gold standard for a long time, that myectomy was the gold standard. I think it remains the gold standard in terms of symptomatic obstructive HCM management. It's it's the the correction. And when patients are given the data, while nobody really wants to have their chest cracked open, we know that it's not the worst thing in the world. They've been there, done that. It's doable. And when they see that the long-term effects are more beneficial and can maybe help them live longer, it's kind of an easy decision when when people are looking at the two. We also have patients who have severe kidney disease who surgery would be very dangerous for. So it's great to have another option for them, but we really need to continue to support cardiac surgery as a treatment modality for HCM and ensure that we're training up the next generation of surgeons because it is an art form. And I think we all need to make sure that they stay available. And I think this also is telling us too, or underscoring for us too right now, that this conversation that we have with patients who have symptoms related to obstruction, you know, is is more complicated than it was maybe before. I mean, it's 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 a it 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 involves now a new drug, and now it involves additional information about surgery and ablation. And so, you know, as Steve was saying, you know, and 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 it's so true. You have to really individualize the you know the the the, the treatment recommendations or I you know for patients because. You know, we've got a lot of options now and there's advantages and disadvantages to all of them. And one may not, there's there's not one right answer here. There's a lot of enthusiasm about the new drug and, and that's understandable. And we are very excited about that. But, you know, we also have to take a step back and still put it into the context of, of all the available options today and give patients the opportunity to fully understand strengths and weaknesses of all the options so they can really make the best choice for them as yeah. each individual patient. Yeah, I think I think that's important too. And I, I also think that there's an underappreciated potential role for Mavicampton and other new drugs. And that is to buy people some time right. because expert ablation operators and expert surgeons are not at every hospital in the country, nor should they be so that we can have that expertise, but maybe going on this drug gets you time to where you can get to one of those expert surgeons. Or if you've got a child getting married in the springtime and you don't want to be either pre or post-op for your child's wedding, well, maybe Mavicampton buys you the opportunity to get through that celebration or whatever time period it is, and then you get your operation. And so using the agent as a trial or a bridge to definitive therapy and those kind of things, I think is going to see something that we'll see some patients do. And, you know, we've talked before about when you talk to the patient, it's not just medication versus myectomy per se, it's medication every day indefinitely with a whole bunch of echocardiograms and clinical check-ins or an operation with its two month window of a lot of activity. And then after that, things really even out and you actually have less healthcare needs after that. And so we have to include that long-term issues. And, and we frankly don't know what it means to be on these new drugs for five years or more yet. 
So there's lots of stuff that I agree makes this conversation even longer than it was before. I, I really have to say, I, I love my time on the phones with, with patients with HCM from all over the world. And I had an interesting one the other day where young woman definitely obstructed, definitely symptomatic and was weighing medical therapy over surgery. She wants to have another child. And she's like, well, can I stay on this drug during pregnancy? And what are the complications? And I'm like, we don't have any data. And she's like, I think I'm just going to go have surgery. And for that situation, because there's not a lot of data, you know, pregnant women, that that was one I I had not stopped and thought about the pregnant women population and how it's going to impact that age group. Even if you start somebody on, on MAVA when they're in their 20s and they're not thinking about having children, this is something we need to start thinking about is what happens. They want to become pregnant or they accidentally become pregnant unless they stop the drug. What's, we haven't really talked about that too much. And it's also worth mentioning too, that HCM is a global disease that we have to really be thinking in terms of this disease globally today, not just about the U S and oh, yeah. when we talk about globally. And I'm bringing this up because I just saw a patient the other day. It's a physician from India. And the question was Mavicampton and I can't get it. You know, it's not available. And so, you know, you need an operation because the other option is not even an option. There's all kinds of differences and individual expectations and and, and preferences. But 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 we also have to think about this in terms of what's accessible for our global population right now. The great news is there's more tools in the toolbox, more opportunities for discussion. They get a little bit more complicated, but we get there. I have to apologize for my congestion because it was at bay, but now I'm getting like, I got a cold people. It's not COVID. I don't have RSV. I don't have the flu. I got a good old fashioned cold. So those of you who have sent me messages, yes, I have a cold. Steve, other articles of interest for the year. Well, I think that, you know, what one of the challenges we have in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is always the really sensitive subject of sudden cardiac death risk assessment. And, and we know that our, while we get better and better at it all the time, there's, there's gaps in our ability to assess that in individual patients. And so there's always articles looking for new, new risk markers that we might need to consider. And some, you know, one of the intriguing ones that's, that's come out over the past year or two is that perhaps patients who have atrial fibrillation have higher risk than patients who don't have atrial fibrillation. We don't know, you know, it hasn't been compared head to head with the current, you know, guideline algorithms or tools that we're using, how much AFib represents a burden versus not. And is, is it actually AFib that leads to the dangerous heart rhythm or is AFib just a expression of someone who has a more clinically severe case of HCM and so forth. They're, therefore, they're more likely to have all the severe complications of HCM. But it's certainly an intriguing thing that, that you know, I would encourage all of our academic colleagues in the HCM field to continue to, to investigate and, and consider what that implications of that might be. I think one of the things that we counsel patients on is understanding their own individual anatomy and how that might play a part in how they think about disease management, how they plan their life, how they prepare for what might be coming downstream. And I've always encouraged people to know certain measurements and left atrial dimension is one of them. 
the closer it gets to a 5.0, the harder it is for the heart to stay in sinus rhythm. Doesn't mean you're definitely going to go into AFib, but if, if you're at risk and you're in that area of 4.8, you know, yeah. maybe you should be doing a little bit more monitoring to see if there's asymptomatic AFib going on. Can one of you discuss what are the potential downstream consequences of atrial fibrillation beyond potentially being a risk marker? Yeah. So, I mean, I think we, when we you know, I think when we talk about atrial fibrillation, in HCM, no question that there are two sort of major issues. One is that risk for stroke is very high. It can be increased in any patient with HCM, with, with atrial fibrillation, um, not all, but many patients. But in HCM, that risk is very high. One of the major advances in HCM has been that we have appreciated that fact and as a result have integrated a recommendation for low threshold to prescribe for anticoagulation therapy to protect patients against stroke. That's made a, by the way, I think that's really made a huge difference. I don't know, if, I, I hope Steve will agree with that. It's made a huge difference in terms of, you know, the, 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 the protection against devastating fatal and non-fatal strokes from a, atrial fibrillation and ATM, uh, which we hardly see today because of that management change over the last five to 10 years, particularly with the newer agents, which make it very easy, much easier for patients yeah. to take these drugs. And then the second complication is most patients with HCM who get atrial fibrillation feel much worse when they get it. It impacts acutely quality of life because it's a symptom burden issue. And so it's not really well tolerated for that reason. And that's why, you know, in general, we have to be a little bit more aggressive with trying to maintain regular rhythm in patients who have HCM and atrial fibrillation for that reason. Those are the really the two major issues. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. You know, for the, the risk of stroke is, is big. It's at least 3% per year risk of stroke just across the whole population. That's without including any other potential risk that a patient may bring to that. And that is kind of the the threshold for non-HCM patients on when we start recommending anticoagulation. And it is the development of these new direct anticoagulants that now can be used as alternatives to Coumadin, which has changed people's lives and tolerability of the medication, much more reliable anticoagulation effects. They don't have to have their blood checked all the time to make sure they're in the right range. Very few interactions with other agents as compared to what Coumadin was, that it is an important thing and the symptom burden is, is real. I'm going to do a little dive into history for a moment and explain how stroke impacted the HCM community in a much more profound way than some people might be aware of. The surgeon who actually created myectomy, Dr. Morrow, was actually an HCM patient. He was diagnosed by Eugene Brunwald back in the probably early 60s. And by the 80s, he started to have atrial fibrillation. He opted in the early 80s not to use anticoagulation because he was afraid of nicking himself in the operating room and causing a problem because, you know, he's a surgeon, he's working with knives. So he opted not to go on anticoagulation. Therapy and um, he had a stroke, which left him unable to operate or function in the way that he wanted to. Which I will say ultimately, you know, ended his life. Every once in a while, when people say, "Oh, do I really need to do anticoagulation therapy? It's just intermittent AFib," and you know, I, I, I think I'm worth. You know, it's worth the risk. I tell them the story of Dr. Morrow, a, a gifted surgeon who is could have done much more for the community had he been on anticoagulation therapy. And those stories, you know, there's many others, but I think his is 
incredibly poignant to this community for a lot of reasons. Um, and I had a stroke related to not atrial fibrillation. It was an embolic stroke due to endocarditis. But I assure you, you do not want to have a stroke. It is not a passive event. It is painful. It's debilitating. And I'm damn lucky that I didn't lose more function than I did. I'm partially blind in one eye. Most people don't know that um, because of the stroke. But stroke is serious. And we have done a phenomenal job at identifying these patients and getting them on the right therapy. So stroke numbers are way down in the community. But that can't let us be less vigilant on trying to prevent it. Because you let your guard down, it's going to come back. It's going to come back. Okay, so we have some key articles. We have some key clinical discovery and drug pathways that are opening up. Is there any advances in imaging or assessment or anything else that we really move the mark on in 2022 or that we could in 2023. Do you think there's been anything that's changed the that's moved the needle a little bit there in imaging? I don't I can't I, think I don't I don't know that there has. You know, there there continues to be, I mean, there are a ton of studies on the MRI features that that are associated with risk for fatal, you know, heart rhythms and those kind of things, but they they mostly are confirmatory of what we've what we've already what we've already said. Maybe a few studies on for those patients who do have evidence of fibrosis, kind of what the time course we get a little bit, but you know, it's, it's not a rapidly progressive thing for most patients. It's more slowly progressive, but I don't think there's any, any huge things, but I do think I'd be interested in your thoughts on this, Marty, that for Mavic Hampton and we're following ejection fraction and, and, and gradients as a way for the safety is maybe some of these things that either strain by echo or CMR or other features that we have on those images there might end up being subtle or nuanced predictors of who's going to respond to the medication favorably or not favorably. That would be a, maybe I'm jumping the gun lease and saying, that's, I'll put that in my hope bucket for, for 2023, that we'll learn that something other than ejection fraction might be a way to discriminate patients earlier. Being able to determine which patients are most likely going to benefit from treatments is really important concept period, particularly yeah. when those therapies have risk to them and also are costly. So being able to better risk stratify patients who are going to benefit clinically is a huge point. And I think there's going to be a lot of work directed at that in HCM, as you said. So I would fully agree. That that's something to look forward to. The age old question in HCM that continues to evolve, exercise in HCM. We've we continue to move forward. There's more data coming from LiveHCM very, very soon. And I think we all agree in the community that moderate exercise for the majority of patients is encouraged. Would we say that the community is in agreement on basic exercise at this point? Yeah, well, Lisa, I, th I think what you made was a, just a very critical distinction there. And that's, let, let's not talk about competitive athletics, because that really applies to such a tiny sliver of the population. And unfortunately, the, the data that we have, you know, historically led people down the pathway of the, if you can't be a competitive athlete, then you shouldn't exercise vigorously to you shouldn't exercise at all. And we did the community a disservice. And now we're seeing the data that allow us to unravel that and tell patients with HCM that they can derive the same physical health benefits and mental health benefits from being active at a low to moderate intensity level as everyone else is supposed to be. Um, 
Uh, you know, there was a study that I saw from the last year that showed the benefits of, you know, formal cardiac rehab in patients with HCM, improving their exercise capacity without danger and all those kind of things. So I think the idea of leading an active, healthy lifestyle is, is important. I completely agree. And I'll just, I mean, there's no question about that. hundred percent agree. And I'll just say too, that, you know, that recommendation that patients with HCM should and can safely engage in mild to moderate recreational level activity to stay in shape, both physically and mentally has actually been part of the recommendations for this disease going back to the first guidelines. This, yes. this isn't actually new. <laughs> I mean, Steve did an incredible job of sharing the last guidelines, which of course reiterated those recommendations again. And there's now more evidence maybe to support that recommendation, but it's always been part of the conversation for sure. The question of competitive athletics and professional and division one, these are very nuanced issues. There's a small number of individuals that they actually impact, but they dominate the conversation sometimes. And I believe that we should be they have a right to have their questions answered in the right format, but making a blanket policy um, is probably not the right way to go. And each individual patient has to be evaluated on their own merits and their own risk tolerance, as well as that of their sponsoring organization. And I will, I will leave it there, but I'm, I'm a little tired of the conversation because we've been saying the same things for like 20 years, but somehow people get it. Like I got HCM. I'm supposed to sit on the couch. No, that's not what we're saying. And we're also not saying you should go out and be a professional weightlifter. There's something in between there. So let's find the right match with the right team. Okay. Other 2022 accomplishments, the HCMA reformulated its medical advisory committee. And I'm happy to be sitting here with two of the chairs of that committee And we've started to have new processes internally on how we're going to engage with researchers and how we're going to try to move the needle on matters that are of importance to the HCMA community while staying in the lane of patient advocacy. There's a difference between clinical assessment of patients and patient-reported outcomes. There, There are different skill sets and there are different reasons we do different types of evaluations. So the HCMA took on the project this year of cleaning up our data set. So if anybody's done an intake with us in the past 27 years, we're probably going to be reaching back out to you soon to update files and to ask you if you want to participate in a registry and you'll get survey opportunities and different points will be collected so that maybe, just maybe, HCMA and our advisory committee can work to identify better clinical trial endpoints to really speak to the needs of this patient community. Marty, you want to talk a little bit about what a clinical trial endpoint is and why we are uniquely posed to help answer that question? It's a complicated area, but but just simplify it, I guess, and just just because we were running out of time to, you know, essentially the way it sort of works, not just in HCM, but in in in, all, in in most clinical trials with with new therapies, drug therapies or interventions, you know, the, 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 the way those new therapies get approved is that they are shown to have a benefit in a clinical trial. And that benefit is usually judged based on what's called a primary endpoint, some kind of what we call test or evaluation or assessment 
that has been in a way kind of validated to show that if it improves that endpoint, that the therapy, the intervention is doing something good for patients. That could be improving symptoms. It could be making patients live longer. It could be decreasing risk of other things. And so the way we do that is we have an endpoint, a, a test or tests, or sometimes it can be a combination of tests that sort of tell us that that therapy or intervention is working. And, and that those endpoints can be different for different diseases in different situations. And, and I think what you're raising is the issue that in HCM specifically, that challenges with trying to develop endpoints, tests that we believe best reflect the needs of the patients, what's most affecting the patients in this disease. Some of the endpoints that we've had in the past are helpful, but they don't perhaps do a good enough job of reflecting that. What we're trying to do here is move the conversation in a direction where we can come together with all of our partners to think about and develop new ways of assessing treatments that may just better reflect the patient experience and journey with this disease. That's that's kind of it in a nutshell. I think I agree 100% with Marty setting again just for the audience, you know, the way you choose an endpoint for a trial depends on what what you think the therapy can do, but also how common that thing is. So everyone wants to make sure that we're saving lives, right? So if you have a condition where half the people with that condition die each year, you can do a pretty quick study and prove it and it it, it does that. But when you have a condition like HCM that can have such a low death rate, fortunately, it takes a long, long time to do a study to prove that anything improves survival in HCM. And so you might choose things like, does it improve your exercise capacity? Well, that's important to our patients. They want to be able to do more in those types of things. So sometimes you use endpoints that measure different values of exercise capacity. And, And Lisa, you pointed out one recently that for HCM, perhaps uniquely amongst the cardiac conditions I can think of, it's the unpredictability of symptoms from day to day that really can mess with patients. I mean, there are conditions where they know that every time I do this, I'm going to get symptoms. I'm okay with cutting that out of my life. I'll deal with it otherwise. But for our HCM patients, there are some days they can do anything they want and other days they can't. And it makes you unable to plan life or be spontaneous and those kind of things. And, and so there's all kinds of endpoints that we might want to look at to say, how, do, how, does this, how is this trial or this therapy going to be meaningful to a patient with HCM day in and day out? We've recently started asking in our intakes questions slightly differently. Some of you may be familiar with New York Heart Association class. How far can you walk? What can you do? Where are you limited? And we now ask patients, what does a good day look like? Where is your New York Heart Association class? What does an average day look like? What does a bad day look like? And you'll find people say, on a good day, I'm a one, I can do anything. On an average day, maybe I'm a two. On a bad day, I'm definitely a three. And how do you create a clinical trial endpoint? Because you don't know what day you're showing up to clinic and what you're reporting on that day. So we need some continuity and and clarity as to what is success. And to me, success is stability, not necessarily always improvement, but stability of class so you can be predictable in your life. Maybe we can come up with an endpoint that the FDA will like and that industry will like and that clinicians will like that meets the needs of the patients. 
Yeah, I, I, I often ask patients, what have you stopped doing that you would like to or think you should be able to? And then we can decide whether we have a method to get them back to that. The symptoms change, right, so much. And, and, and these endpoints that we've been talking about are usually just at one point in time in the study. And at that one point, that's it. And so maybe we need new endpoints that kind of have the opportunity to kind of continually evaluate patients over the treatment period rather than just at one time point. Yep. And maybe that would be leveraging new technology. And, and that's kind of what we need to explore. We're very early, but that's kind of the direction that we may be going. I think it's an exciting direction. And the Medical Affairs Committee is also assisting the HCMA in vetting questions from researchers that they want to pose to the community. There's a lot of interest. If we said yes to everybody, that's pretty much all we would do is be doing clinical trial work or or research work for investigators. So we we need to set some standards on what we're going to do and what we're going to be able to do. Uh, it becomes a bandwidth issue at a certain point, but we are interested in getting those applications and we've created an application process and we're getting a scoring process in place so that we can engage with researchers. Students were always interested in your project, so students should apply because that we, we put the bar pretty low for students. But um, other researchers, you know, we have some serious questions. We want to maintain data integrity. We want to maintain security and we want to be thoughtful about what we're doing. So encourage yeah, that. Yeah, I, I want to reemphasize that point. There, there's a lot of bandwidth issues. I mean, you could spend, you know, 200% of your time helping researchers, but we also want to make sure that we're following ethical research standards, privacy, data security, all those kind of things so that people know that, that you are their stewards, but trying to help move the disease forward, but with proper formal research practices and not just, you know, um, letting things go willy-nilly. The community is appreciative of everybody who's volunteered for the Medical Affairs Committee, and we're looking forward to some really great work in 2023 and beyond. There's two questions on the table, and then I want to ask your following thoughts, which I'll give you a moment to prepare for. And the, the last question after the after the questions, the questions to you will be, what do you hope happens in 2023? And what can we discuss next December as what we think we accomplished? But the questions are, do you think spironolactone for the use in decreasing scarring is a useful methodology. Marty, I know you did a trial on this. Can you speak to what that trial said? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. So whoever asked that, that was great. It's a great question, great insight. Yeah, there's been one, only one study, very small over a short period of time, but basically what it showed was that spironolactone in HCM did not appear to have any effect on fibrosis at all. Again, that could be that that there could be many reasons why that is. It doesn't mean that it's the wrong drug or that it couldn't do that or that it wouldn't do that. But but at the moment, that small evidence we have does not support spironolactone influencing or mitigating SCARP in HCM. So this kind of goes back to what Steve said. I mean, maybe we need to start thinking better about how to repurpose drugs that exist but do it in a smarter, more thoughtful way in terms of applying the HCM so we can really answer those kind of questions with drugs that are already available and that are you know affordable in that way. And so that's a that's another thing for the future. But at the moment, that we don't use it for that reason. Other patients with heart failure preserved ejection fraction, it, is, it has become a relatively standard therapy, not because of its impact on SCAR, as you said, but because it impacts other aspects of their symptom status, et cetera. And so again, if we rethink what the endpoints or goals of the therapy are, then, then there might be a role for it in our patients with HCM as well. Full disclosure, I was a patient in that trial, Marty. <laughs> 
Um, we all know how that story ended, but yeah, ended that is not re representative of the, the total study <laughs> population. You know, it's a lot of people are taking spironolactone. It's probably yeah. somewhere in the neighborhood of 15% of our population. I don't think it's, I don't think it's net wrong or yeah. that it's harmful, but it's just not clear it's beneficial. That's you right. need to understand the reasons why you're using a medication. And as right. you said, it's not about decreasing fibrosis, at least to our ability to approve, to approve that. To Steve, it's a, it's a future guidelines question, potentially. Do you think there'll be a role for um, strain burden to be utilized in assessing HCM in the future guidelines? Strain? Strain. strain. Yeah. So, so strain for, again, for those of you who might not be familiar with that is a, is a measure of how the heart deforms when it contracts and relaxes. In, in many ways, it's a more subtle indicator of the function of the heart. We use, you've all heard about ejection fraction, which is actually a pretty crude measurement. This is a much more subtle, nuanced measurement. And there have been plenty of studies that show that people that have gene variants for HCM, even if their heart muscle isn't thick, that measures of strain or similar things are, are already abnormal in most patients. The challenge with those tools is there are not standard ways that exist. Every ultrasound company has their own proprietary method of measuring that. Each CMR, there's many CMR techniques that can measure those types of things. So while I believe that the concept of strain as an indicator for who might fail a new drug or who might have a more, you know, with mild hypertrophy, but their strain is abnormal, they might actually have kind of preclinical or very mild expression of their HCM. I think those things are true, but it requires us to kind of coalesce around standard tools of assessment of that before it's going to have broad ap applicability. Steve, I'll start with you. What do you hope we accomplish in 2023? I think that I already said the one, I actually fed into that last question. I hope we get measures beyond EF that we can predict who might be at high risk for the adverse consequences of our new drugs so that we don't have to follow everyone so uh, rigorously tightly that we can have a more natural flow for that. I, I also hope that we, we get... Um, better coverage for more patients for the new agents so that they might might be eligible for it, but that we also learn its, its role in real life clinical practice outside of clinical trials, because it's a, it's a different world day to day when you've got a you've got study coordinators and research volunteers that are taking care of a, a clinical study versus you, you let a you let an agent or a therapy out into the wild, so to speak. And, and we still you know, it's going to take us it won't happen in 2023, although I can put it on my wish list. It'll take two to three to five years for us to really start to get an understanding of, of how this is going to work in a regular practice. Fantastic. Marty? Well, first, let me just say two quick things first. First, let me just thank Steve for letting me join you guys today. I missed my podcast <laughs> last week because something happened. And so I appreciate him letting me crash your guys' party today. Takes me uh, off the hot seat more, Marty. You're always welcome. Thank you. I appreciate it. I always, always like to join you guys. So maybe we should do that more often, perhaps. Um, two is, again, wishing everybody a good holiday out there and a healthy new year, obviously, as well. To answer the question, I guess, you know, I don't know if we're going to get the answer to this in, in, in just one year in 2023, but I hope that we can see some progress in the right direction for non-obstructive HCM. You know, I think, as I yeah. said before, 
it, it, it's the most frustrating, perhaps, and greatest unmet need. And I think if we can get some advancements, even with the trial starting and 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 other drug therapies being applied potentially to be investigated in non-obstructive HCM, and and we tr- design trials that are thoughtful, that you know that are going to hopefully tell us what we hope they will tell us about those new therapies in non-obstructive HCM, then. I think that's a huge step forward. I'm going to add a wish to the wish list. We didn't talk about it today, but um, we have some initiatives that we're moving forward to try to get funded that will help us identify more members of the black and brown community to get them diagnosed with HCM. We are embarrassingly very low on our diagnosis in black and brown individuals. And every center has got similar numbers they need representation. HCMA will be seating a health equity committee. We have a, a very large grant that we're proposing as a joint venture between HCMA, a group called MPAC, which is um, a Black minister's organization, a company called Arc Health, PCNA, the Preventative Cardiovascular Nurses Association, and Women Heart, and uh, potentially some other partners that we've spoken to recently to go into churches in these communities and help them get screened, train the screeners, develop relationships between community care providers and centers of excellence for referral patterns so that they, we can find those who are at risk and get them to the care that they need. But um, I want to report next year that we have increased our health equity numbers and we are seeing more individuals from the black and brown community so that we can deliver the care that we have available. Um, We are calling this the All Hearts Collaborative, and we want to make sure all hearts have the opportunity to be evaluated for HCM. And additionally, my other wish is that our HCM Act is starting to move forward on the state level. Good news to report that many states are passing proclamations or resolutions to recognize HCM Awareness Day, which is going to be February 22nd, 2023, and it's always going to be the fourth Wednesday of February Heart Month. So we've got a number of resolutions that are coming, which are gateways to having conversations with lawmakers in those states to include cardiac questions in well-child exams so that we can help healthcare provider on the ground, meet the family where they are and make appropriate referrals, not only for HCM evaluation, but for other forms of genetic heart disease. So that's my wish list. (laughs) Uh, and I'm hoping that when I, when we speak this time next year, I'll say we've gotten a number of laws passed or we have bills in progress. It's going to be a slow roll. There's 50 states and they each need work. So uh, stay tuned for a sign-on letter if you're in the medical community. And if you're a patient, stay tuned for opportunities to speak through our online portal to your legislative representatives to take a role there. So that's what I hope for next year. <laughs> I wish you both a really wonderful holiday season. Happy Hanukkah. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. I hope everybody takes some time because we all run all year. I hope everybody takes a minute to stop and breathe. (laughs) Be with their family. Remember why we fight the fight. It's so that families can stay whole. And we appreciate everybody in the path of helping that be accomplished every year. So Marty, Steve, thank you for everything that you've done for the organization and your patients this year. We really appreciate you. And that concludes another episode of Tales from the Heart.